Shalom, everyone. We are recording my colleagues and I from the Gan Chapel. It is Wednesday, December the 13th. It is uh, Rosh Chodesh Tevet, and it is the sixth day of Hanukkah. And what we're going to talk about in broad strokes is, um, is a tension be- between different Jewish texts about how does God operate in the world. Uh, stated simply on Hanukkah, um, in Hallel, which we offered up this morning, we have a world where God saves us. God answers our prayers. I'll give you an example here. This is from Hallel. We said it today. Amin hametar karatiya anani bamerchavya. In distress, I called to Adonai, who answered by setting me free. Adonai is with me. I shall not fear. What can mortals do to me? I shall not die, but live to recount the deeds of Adonai. And we sing that. That's hollow means praise. We sing that. Um, but the reality is, when I finished davening this morning at Arminian, you read the news, and two more hostages were discovered dead, aged 26 and 37, in the tunnels. And yesterday, Tuesday, 10 Israeli soldiers died. And so there's a dissonance between the words of Hallel that we offer up every morning during Hanukkah and the much harder reality of the world. And as a consequence, there's a whole other set of liturgies which captures the hard world. Uh, We're going to take a look at two poems to talk about not how God is there for us and saves us, but how God is utterly absent. And how do we understand those texts? And then, after we compare... Uh, the cheery motif of Hallel and the dark and sad motif of, of, of the Kaddish for the Holocaust and the Kaddish for October 7th. We're going to think about the Joseph story and whether that offers us a model for spirituality for the real world in which we live. So let's thank God for the gift of learning for us together. <coughs> So I want to begin, actually, by talking to Elias, because we were just opening this uh, hollow together here in the space, began chapel at the ripe early hour of 6.45 a.m. And I'm wondering, and you are our chazan, you are our shliach tibor, when you led hollow, and you said, in, you know, uh, in distress I called Adonai, who answered by setting me free. Adonai is with me. I shall not fear. What can mortals do for me? I shall not die, but live to recount the deeds of Adonai. And then that's a whole trope here. I know I love knowing that Adonai listens to my cry of supplication because God does hear me. Uh, God has delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before Adonai in the land of the living. You know, everything has changed with October 7th. How has October 7th changed your experience of Hala? Um, it definitely changed. 
uh, the idea that halal usually are some where you bring happiness into the service. It's a special occasion, it's a special holiday, and we uh, enhance the holiday by, by chanting with beautiful melodies. Um, things have changed completely since October 7. In my own case, I try to approach it in a way that, um, that no matter what, we continue as Jewish people celebrating and, and going to the, to the core, to the basis of, of the Psalms and, and texts that unified us. But I've, I've tried to do this morning, for example, I didn't feel like singing all the melodies in the holiday because there were some melodies that perhaps were too cheery. And it's, it's that, you know, finding the balance between saying these words and singing the songs, and, uh, but also reflecting what's going on, you know, after October 7. Alex, when you're the Shliach Tibur and you're leading and you're saying words that are belied by reality, they're undermined by reality, they're mocked by reality, God answers us, God sets us free, we're alive because of God, go God. And you know that what happened happened, and what is happening now is happening now, and Israeli soldiers are dying every day. Um, what does that do to your intent, your mental state, when you're offering up those words that you know are not true in real time? Uh, interestingly enough, I was having a conversation with, with Robert Michel Robinson. He doesn't like when I said Robert Michel. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if there was a different Rabbi Michel. Right, right, right. Either Michel or Robert Robinson. Anyways, uh, I was having a conversation that I've been having a hard time, unrelated to this, but because my personal situation that I, I've been living these days, is that every Amida we, we chant, we say, And when you are in mourning, the last thing you want to hear is, because you know that your relative is not coming back. So this idea that the reform, I finally understood why the reform movement has changed to Mechaia Kol instead of Mechaia Meitim. So there are some words that, going back to the Halel, don't make any sense. They really don't make any sense. And you say them anyway, thinking what? Thinking that, you know, this is, this is who we are and that not necessarily we believe in every single word that we are chanting and praying, but these are songs written, you know, a thousand years ago, more, two thousand years ago, and that's what has sustained us and unified us through generations. Uh, uh, colleagues, what are, how does Halal Pass for you post October 7th? So, my favorite interpretation of that, Machaye HaMetim, is that it's not only about the resurrection. Oh, let's just tell our viewers here, Machaye HaMetim is resurrects the dead. And um, that's a whole separate conversation, but Machaye HaMetim has been changed in the reform movement to Machaye HaKol, resurrects everything, so it's now about springtime, it's about or Cynthia's in bloom, it's not that you'll see your mother again. So my favorite interpretation <laughs> of that resurrection of the dead is not that it's only the literal resurrection of the, the dead who have gone on, but also that it is about the resurrection of the death that has occurred inside of us when we say, resurrect me from the dead because there's some part of my heart that is so broken, that is so, that's carrying so much pain that I myself feel like the dead and help me return to life. And so therefore, we can take these prayers word by word. So therefore, right, when, we, when you apply interpretation to these prayers, including to the Hallel prayers, which is the question you asked, 
to me, even if it's not happening in, in this moment, the assertion that it happened brings strength. It's sometimes I need to put it in future tense mm-hmm. for myself. Sometimes I, I need to see it as, hey, you said that this was going to happen. I'm reminding you of it. There are many different ways that you can interpret your way to making those words a profoundly powerful um, thesis, right? I, I don't know how to exactly translate thesis, but strengthening, rein, reinforcing yeah. our own spiritual strength at this moment that we need. And so in other words, it's aspirational or it's I mean, a I challenge? Think, I think aspirational is too, it's it's thin gruel, okay. right? Sure. It's not aspirational. It, it, it happens and reminding myself that even if it's not happening for me, it happened, and, and, and that it, it is true and it is real actually gives me the strength so to encounter okay, whatever I, may come. Can I gently push back or inquire more gently? What do you do for the dead Israeli soldiers, for whom it did not happen and now it will not happen? I can, I can, that's not a question you can answer in, you know, a quick, no, no, in a I'm quick sentence, but right. I, I will say. No, but that's our reality, because like, you know, this morning we, we said Hallel, and I, go, I always check my emails right after services, and I always get a newswire about what happened in the war, and we went from seeing this Hallel to 10 Israeli soldiers. Look, I, I think so a pat answer, a I think a pat answer is offensive, right? Each person in their own loss needs to search their own soul for what they find there. Right. I don't think as a rabbi you're helpful if you're directive about what there is or isn't. I'm not directive. The, only, the only thing I can do yeah. is share for me. So if, I, if I'm talking to the, the soldiers' families, I mean, first of all, I show up and I sit. That's what our tradition tells us to do and simply be there um, without words, without t- me telling them how they should feel. They tell us how they feel. Um, and if they were to ask, you know, I, I think the idea that they are part of a history of our people that is enduring and that is meaningful and that is, is for something means that their children's sacrifice is part of what God is in our world. I'm reminded of years ago when we went on for the first ICAF with um, multiple system activity. And actually, I think it was one time it was, it was Parkinson's and suicide and brain surgery, but and there was a rough diagnosis right before Hallel, the rest told us. And I went to Lakota services. I was just like bawling, saying Hallel. And the words for me was so different than where my heart was at that it prompted an emotional reaction and a processing that I otherwise wouldn't have had because it was like I was faced with the world as it should be and experiencing the world as it is and that place enabled me to feel the grief that I had about her diagnosis and to process it and I think similarly the words that we have and the liturgy that we have isn't just descriptive it also prompts an internal process that helps us to function in our world. And that, for me, is really helpful when you go to Hallel because it's not just about God, it's also about us, and that, that really is an important part. We need to be upset that the world is not as it should be, and it cannot be that we just become inured to this pain. We have to be constantly focusing on what should be and how the world should operate so that we can really grieve the pain so that we don't become this pain. Let me just call a timeout and know 
that this is one whole model, that we have this plane, and one model is the absolute worth of power, with all the complexities, what you just said about, about it's a space and so we get our own plane, what you just said is the, and, and why it's such a real part of a people and a story and a history and, and impersonating your full presence, a silent presence, but, but these words tell us we're part of a longer history. So there's all that where the words speak a, a, a reality that is different from the reality, okay? Now I want to pivot to a whole other mood and ask you what comes, what brings out for you, what comes up for you. And, and in particular as well, is it a helpful mood? Is the following mood helpful? So this is a poem called Kaddish by Asaf Gur. Uh, it came to my attention, um, you know, you get your reviews in this business, synagogue business by Kiddish. So um, Alex Ginsberg taught this at the Chapel Minion this past Shabbos. And any number of people came up to me at Kiddish and said, oh my God, Alex Ginsberg just taught this poem. So Alex, thank you. And Steve Bookbinder and others, thank you for bringing it to my attention. Um, so here's the deal, just to frame this. Um, Asaf Gur, who is the writer of this poem, is not a poet. This poem is his first poem. Indeed, this poem is his only poem. He's not a poet. He is a broadcaster. He's a newscaster. He's a reporter. And what happened basically was th this poem tells a story, a true story, that happened on October 7th, which is a reporter goes to the South, where the slaughter took place, and is there with the camera, and he's like the local reporter, and he sees unspeakable. He sees many dead babies. He sees many slaughtered babies. And he sees and he smells and the blood and the loss and the cruelty in Israel. And it's, it's unspeakable. And, and he says in the middle of his, of his reporting, I quit. I can't do this anymore. I quit. And then it, it, they, they turn back from the field where the, where the reporter quit to the front, you know, to the desk at the station. Okay? This poem is about that. And Asafur is uh, also secular, and he calls this poem Kaddish. So I'm going to read it and ask you what comes up for you. It's obviously the polar opposite, the antithesis of Hawel, and ask you if it's helpful and what else comes up for you. Okay? Yisgadal v'yisgadash me Rabbah, and no one came. Many thousands called him on Shabbat morning, crying his name out loud, begging him with tears just to come. But he ceased from all his work. No God came, and no God home. Only Satan celebrated uninterrupted, dancing between Kibbutzim and the slaughter festival. And our correspondent goes on to report all the while sobbing, saying there is a burnt baby, and there is an abducted baby, there is an orphaned baby, and there is a day-old baby, still linked to his mother's body by the umbilical cord. He hadn't even managed to find out his name. What will be inscribed on the tiny headstone with a single date for birth and death? This is what the kibbutz looks like after Satan's visit. Turning the broadcast back to the studio, quiet now, they are shooting, they are launching rockets, and there is no government, and there is no mercy, 
just the screaming and the pictures that will never leave the mind, the 7th of October, 2023. Reaction? I mean, it's, it's as raw as it can get. And um, I was, I was going to say before that we hold, God gave us two hands, one to hold um, our hopes and aspirations, and the other to build reality on our faith and training. But hearing and reading, have, having read this poem, I'm not sure just that. Speak into your mind. I'm not sure what, where that space is. I, um, there's a teaching that it is not permissible to offer comfort to someone while they're dead lay before them. And I'm mindful of that, not, not just for this particular po- now reporter turned poet. Right. Um, but also for the entire nation of Israel and also for every single one of us. I mean, there is a moment where you cannot be comforted. And, and we are, we, this is securely in that moment. It needs to be named. It needs to be said. And it's, it's really a brilliant use of the text here because we do sing in our Kiddush, right? We sing that God rests on Shabbat and this idea that uh, that there is no no work on Shabbat and here he is using that idea you know just as, as a knife in, in the heart of, of Jewish theology and it is um, so powerful and so important the way he, he uses that idea kind of against itself and it's important for all of us to be able to, to feel that in the moment that our dead lies before us, mm. and that doesn't necessarily mean that this is where we stay forever and always. Right. Uh, Michelle, could you just comment for a second on why he places this whole emotional reaction in the language of Kaddish? And in particular, I, I guess this is just a small, tiny detail, but it calls out to me. Um, he's an Israeli. So any Israeli would say, Yitzhadal, Yitzhadal, Shemir, Rabah. Um, but at least as it's translated, um, it's translated Yitzchadal the Yitzchadash Shemerabah. So why, you know, may the God's great name be sanctified and amplified, and magnified and amplified and sanctified the God's great name? Um, why place this whole construct in the land of Kaddish, and why Yitzchadal the Yitzchadash? So I, I think that we'd have to ask Rafael Korazim and right. Mike and our beloved Michael Bonin and um, Heather Silverman why they translated it this way because the Hebrew right. is the Hebrew, right. right? And the accent used is the accent that's going right. to be authentic to the person there. My guess, um, and Michael can correct us if, if we were wrong here, um, my guess is that they, they want to convey that traditional kind of old world Jewish response. Yeah, right. I get echoes of that, that Holocaust Kaddish coming out yeah. here, and perhaps a link there, and to that I'll turn it over to the cantorial colleagues. Yeah. My interpretation would be following a, a couple of things that come to mind. It's, it's raw. It's raw, exactly, yeah. It's exactly what happened. And there are no better words to describe this than that reality. Um, when I see this, first of all, two things I want to say. The, he has the line, Okay. But we all know that that line is not only said when it's moments. Okay. 
the carriage has different functions and services, one uh, strong strategy is one of them. And Hatzik Darish, you know, Karish Shalem, uh, all different, Karish Rabbanan, many others. All right? So not necessarily these words are always associated with government. Right? <coughs> the other reflection is I wish in the book, in the Sidorim, in the Machzorim, we would have more prayers like this. I wish. Because it's rare to find prayers in the Sidur that, that talk about most of the prayers in the Sidur are praising God. So yeah. let's just let's just so let's I just wish, I yeah. wish we would have more yeah. of this. So speaking more of, of this to right. choose speaking of which, right? Well, let me let me finish my yeah. To choose which ones to use at a certain time, because the Hallel, I'm just thinking out loud. When Israel was created, I would never say prayers. I would say Hallel all day long. Right. So there are times for each one of the prayers. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of which, this I want to just point out, just to build on that energy. Um, page two of the handout is the Holocaust Kaddish. Um, which very famously interlaces the traditional words of Kaddish with the names of the camps. Sweet Kadal, Auschwitz, Sweet Kadash, Loz, Shmerabah, Konar, Balmadi, Rakhute, Babiyar, etc. And Elias, when, what, do you, what do you make of this tapestry of the holy, pure, perfect words of Kaddish describing the holy, pure, perfect God whose name should be amplified and sanctified and magnified? and the names of the camps where God was MIA, when you put those strands together like the Holocaust Kaddish does, what does that do for you? And unlike, um, you know, Asaf Gore's poem, which is too fresh, we don't know what his liturgical life will be, um, we, this Holocaust Kaddish, which has the subversive element, is now official liturgy. I mean, e every Jewish community offers this up on Yom HaShoah. So what's its impact of the perfect God and the very imperfect world. Yeah, I would like to hear your opinions as well, but in my case, I I get comforted when when I read a prayer like this, because because praising God that doesn't mean to me that when God doesn't appear, I don't believe in Him. I believe in God, and perhaps there is whatever we want to call hiding or whatever you know resting or whatever. But these type of prayers are the prayers that we need more often to find in our prayers. This is a prayer that has been done perhaps, I don't know, in the mid-50s, you know, 1950s, but all the other psalms that King David wrote or Asaf and all the others, 2000 years. So we need more of this. It also feels important to note that this maze of praising God in the midst of abject loss and trauma is what we do. I think about, you know, when we go to a, a grave site and we bury someone, the, your hands are still covered in the dust of the, of the earth. And then we say, may God's name be, you know, sanctified and glorified and magnified and make our presence. And we say to mourners, you know, this is really important. You've got to affirm life. You've got to affirm God's presence in your life. This loss does not mean that your life is over. This loss means that you're going to find a way to go on. Can I double click on that for a second? When you say that, and we've all said that in our own losses and when we've encouraged other families, when we say, blessed, you know, uh, God gave us Abraham, God has taken Abraham away, blessed be the name of God who gave us Abraham. Um, is that about affirming life, which is, I know you just lost your beloved father, you've lost your beloved husband Abraham, but life goes on? 
and this is language for life goes on? Or is that in your mind actually about affirming God? Because I always interpreted that to be we're using God as a means to an end. The end is not God. God is the means. The end is resilience and life. Because at, despite the slots, you're going to go on. How, when you say it, how do you mean it? I mean God. You mean God. I mean God because I think that it's very tempting in these moments to say there is no God, that God couldn't allow this to happen, and therefore I'm, I'm done. I'm done with being with God. Um, we had that conversation a few weeks ago, and I think that our tradition, you know, Matthew, the Mishmar, our tradition asks us to do before we're really there in an intellectual way. To say, I don't, I, I'm, I'm at the great side of my beloved. I don't, I actually don't feel this right now. I don't feel like God is in this. I feel like God is pretty far away. I'm, I'm sitting here and, you know, I'm standing at the Kedushim. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this terror. I, I do not feel this. And yet, our tradition says you have to make your mouth form these words that you don't actually believe in in this moment because you're going to get this. And you're going to get back to a place where your life is beautiful enough that you say, oh, my God, this is amazing. Oh, my God, thank God. Wow, God is so amazing. I was at such a low, and now I'm at such a high. And I, wow, God. And, and our tradition says you don't get there by opting out completely. You get there by saying it and doing it and going through the motions until those motions become meaningful. Mm-hmm. I, I was raised in a reconstructionist shul, and every once in a while it seeps back in. And as I'm listening to you, um, Eliza, I think about the fact that when you return to life in this argument that you're having, you know, God, God's not there. God's obviously not there. God is obviously there, and that's the point. And I'm thinking your response that when you return to life, you return to God, I would, through the reconstructionist lens, I would say when you return to life, that is God. And, and I, I wonder, Wes, if that's something that might bridge this, ar- this yeah. argument. Well, let's... Please. Uh, also, the way I think it, I mean, Paul, if we can forget for a moment about what's going on with Israel, I'm talking more generally about life and death. My, always my, my thoughts were we don't spend the same amount of energy and time praising God for the gift of life as we, in a way, complain or are heartbroken with somebody's no longer with us or something happens to us. I mean, the, the fact that we are here is a miracle. The fact that we assume that it's normal. People are born and stuff like that. But it's not. You know? So so I want to, I just want to kind of, because we've got a lot of wonderful ideas uh, in, this, in, in this conversation. I want to kind of pause and then move to our third set of ideas. Uh, we're dealing with the uh, the dream of a, of a loving God and the reality of a very broken and imperfect world, and we've seen a couple of models of liturgy, Hallel, and a lot of other psalms and daily liturgy, and Shabbat and holiday liturgy, which affirms a perfect God who answers our prayer. And then you have kind of what we'll call protest theology, which is the Holocaust Kaddish, Yikadal Auschwitz, Yikadal Auschwitz is, is a protest, and then Asaf's words poem, uh, that God is, is resting while the slaughter is happening. And, and both of those are in our canon. And now the question is, um, how do we resolve this tension or how do we move now? And, and because we're in the middle of the Joseph story, I wanted to offer up Joseph's spirituality. as the, I, I believe it's a distinctive model. I think that what Joseph's relationship with God 
is unique in all of the Torah, and I want to just talk about how and why. And then I want to just do a little bit of a deep dive on Joseph's theology. So God speaks to Abraham, and God speaks to Isaac, and God speaks to Jacob. And God speaks a lot to Moses. God talks to all them directly. God never talks to Joseph. Never talks to Joseph. But the Torah says three times that I can count um, the, the Lord was with Joseph. And those texts are in the handouts. And the places where God is with Joseph are always pit moments. So when he is sold into slavery and bought by Potiphar, he's now an owned human being. He is a slave. God is with Joseph. When he is accused falsely of rape, and the Potiphar, his owner, says, you're going to jail, God is with Joseph. And then when he's actually living as a prison inmate, He's in prison for a crime he did not commit, having been thrown into a pit, having been sold into slavery, and now he's a, he's a prisoner, unjustly. God is with Joseph. And I'm wondering, um, what is that? And what kind of relationship is that? I'll just offer up, with does not mean God prevents bad stuff from happening. Because God might be with Joseph, but that doesn't stop Joseph from being sold into slavery. God is with Joseph. It doesn't stop him from being unjustly accused. God is with Joseph. It doesn't stop him from being thrown into the clinker unfairly. So what good is with? Maybe I'll get a different God. Maybe I'll get a better God. Maybe I'll get a different supposition. How is it helpful that God is with him when all this bad stuff keeps happening? Thank, thank you for bringing that, and I would love to hear, Michelle and Alisa, your expertise on Joseph. But thank you for bringing that, because I think I said before that my one of my favorite, if not my favorite, prayers among all of Rabbi Matsuru is Aromaya. Okay? And it always brings me so much comfort to close any service with Adonai Li Lo Ira. God is with me. I will not fear. And I don't know why, but since I'm a kid, I always find like I feel like protected in a way. And, and perhaps it's what you are saying. Not necessarily will stop from bad things happening to me. But this idea that I have somebody with me, it's great. I think that the power of the Joseph story is also about the worst moments in our life and what they can become. Because every one of his deepest, darkest moments leads him to greatness and to being able to save the people that he cares about most and to being able to find a new place and to being able to find respect. And so it's, you know, you don't, you don't think about how life is going to unfold, right? We often think about what we want, but what it takes to get to what you want is often really difficult and really dark and bleak and challenging. And God being with us enables you to get through the dark moments to be able to get to the light. And I think we have this American, you know, we often talk about the American fairy tale culture, that, that there's this idea that, like, there's a little bit of struggle and then a very happy ending and everything turns out perfectly. And I think we all have this idea that our, our lives should be that, that that's, that's what our lives should be. And the reality, you know, if we were our, our former hunter-gatherer selves, there would be a lot more struggle in every day. There would be a lot more innate struggle in every day, and that would be, we would just think that was a normal part of living. And I think that's okay. God can be with us in the struggle, and we can 
validate the struggle and we can be real about our struggle and, and lift it up and make it holy and get to the place where Joseph does, where he can go back to his darkest moment and say, thank God, this is the place where God was with me. Blessed be this place and the God that was with me in this place. Well, that's what's so interesting about that, this whole moment. You don't have it in the text here. But later on, when Joseph meets his brothers, it's not just that he says, wow, you know, dark times God was with me. He actually imagines God as the architect of all of those bad things that occurred, which ultimately led to him being able to help his brothers right. and help his community. Our, our beloved Hanna Berkovic, I always love the verse, Ki wemitia shalachani Elohim lishnechem hayom. Hannah would always say, and Hannah, the Auschwitz survivor, would always quote this verse as saying, God sent me ahead of you to preserve your life. Yeah. And, and I think in that is, is, is a really precious map for us when we're feeling far from, from God. Because, you know, Joseph is able to to come to terms with a God who might not be the cuddly guy you'd want to have a beer with, right? I mean, Joseph is able to reconcile himself to a God who sometimes hurts. So what is, um, and Dan, I want to get your voice on, on the Joseph side as well, but let me just add a question into this mix. I mean, I, I'm, I'm naturally drawn to the Joseph model because, in part because if somebody says, God, talk to me, you know, they'd be sent to an asylum because we don't believe that God talks to us. By definition, right, that's the and Jerusalem. That's not always true, and I want to be very careful. It's very important to say that there is a growing movement that validates hearing voices as a spiritual experience and that is preserving okay. that, that. It's changing. Okay, that may well. be a movement, but I'm, I'm in the traditional Jewish movement, and the traditional Jewish movement says that when the temple was destroyed, we stopped hearing prophets. Prophets stopped acting. So I'm, I'm just following the Talmudic model that uh, after the destruction of the temple, we no longer hear God's voice. So I'm, 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 I'm with that. We we interpret God's voice through we books. We hear God's voice we in don't. our text and in through our text. That's what I just said. We don't hear God's voice through, I, you know, I heard a vision from God. We read books and we interpret text. That's how we hear God, God's voice. Um, so... Um, so I, I'm naturally drawn to a Joseph model, which is interpretive and doesn't hear primary voices. So I like that. But my question that I want to add into the mix is, what's the application of that model to October 7th and to a post-October 7th world? Um, Mr. Nathan. Um, that's a really hard question. I, I think that you really... When we look at this, we just have to understand that within us, there's always, um, well, let's see, within me, there's always, a, there's always external of hope, even in the darkest moments, kind of like what Joseph had. And, um, and what, what Joseph was able to envision through his dreams was, um, was, uh, was a world in which um, things can be good, like, you know, like... Um, uh, there was R- Rabbi Zamzi, right? Um, no matter how difficult things are, uh, there is good within it. There is hope within it. And I think that's still part of the Joseph story as well. And I was thinking about what I heard you said about Messiah Hamitim. Uh, you know, early on, this very, again, a very complex, uh, complex text. 
uh, I envision Nathaniel 18 in the text as um, connecting spiritually with our past, present, and future. Um, so I think that's, that's a, a part of that as well. And my final reflection for today is that the Asaf Gur poem is the one of the three resources today that speaks much more to me. Yeah, more than and more than Halel and more than the story of Yosef. And obviously, because it's occurrence and throbbing and pulsing, does does the Joseph before we do that, does the Joseph model say anything to you about Israel today? Is it of use to you, or is it just kind of there? Like Rabbi Michel likes to say, aspirational. Okay. Uh, but we don't, so the difference between the Joseph story and the story of Israel today is the Joseph story, we have the ending, and we don't have the ending of Israel today. And that's a really important caveat, that Joseph's story, if you were reading it at the moment where he's thrown in the pit, or if you're reading it at the moment where he's in prison, if you're reading it at the moment, you wouldn't have that same hope. And you would say, like, okay, what good is God? But when we read it from the end and we see where his life led to, that's where we can find the hope. And I think that's a really important reminder for all of us that we don't know what this horrific moment will lead to. And our deepest prayer is that this moment is going to generate such healing and such transformation. It's going to make it possible for our loved ones to live in Israel safely and securely. That it's going to prevent this kind of loss from ever happening again. If that were the case, then, then we could look back at this story and say, like, wow, God was with us all along. It's horrible, totally horrible, but this heralded a transformative moment that has been a blessing for us. Um, Aliza, can I ask you, I don't think I've ever asked this before. You know, we've kind of seen this movie before, in a way, which is we lost six million from 1941 to 1945, the worst tragedy in the history of the Jewish people from 1941 to 1945. And three years later, the greatest blessing in the history of the Jewish people, the rise of the United Israel. Had, I can't believe I've never asked this question in all these years, but how do you see the relationship between the worst moment and the best moment? What ended in 45 and what began in 48? How do you see those connected or deeply connected? I feel like we could have a whole a whole class on that. Um, they are definitely connected. It is also definitely true that in our moment of greatest joy, we're so deeply traumatized and living in our moment of greatest trauma. And that when our deepest pain is connected to our greatest joy, it's hard to process and hard to be in that moment. Right. So I think... But also, you know, when one thing that Hoshua has been discussing in our whole class is... How much of these prayers are for you as an individual or for we collectively as the Jewish people? Because even if the war ends in, you know, in a few months and there is a bright future ahead of us, how the family of the people that were kidnapped or the ones killed in the, in the festival will approach Halel? Right. The outcome for the Jewish people would have been, could have been great, will be right. great, but the, the, the individual loss. It's forever. It's forever. But yeah. how do you engage with that connection, the connection between Israel and the Shoah? Yeah. I mean, um, I, yeah, and we're running out of time, so I will just, uh, I guess, quote, to me, the most profound observation made, which is 
softener that the past is not dead. It's not even past. And as we've talked about before, uh, 1945 did not end in 1945. Um, the Daily today has the Cornell professor on the day of October 7th saying how exhilarated and energized he is by October 7th. The Daily today has, you can hear chants from elite universities where there's a pinata of Bibi Netanyahu and college students are saying, beat the Jew, beat the Jew, beat the Jew, beat the Jew. So you hear it. October 7th is exhilarating and energizing, beat the Jew, beat the Jew, beat the Jew. And that's today's daily, December 13th. And my answer to your question is 1945 did not end. Um, 1948 is the response to 1945. And we need to be all in 110% on 1948. Like my life mission is to do so. Shabbat Shalom.